Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. All right, John chapter 7. John chapter 7. I hope and pray this series in John has been an encouragement to you. Uh, I know that the Lord has used it uh, mightily in my life, still is. And um, just understanding the work of God through Jesus Christ in the world. And today I want us to talk about the word who sends the spirit. We're going to do something a little different today. We're going to look at how it is that God works his redemptive purpose and will in the world. We're going to kind of zoom out a little bit this morning and take a broader perspective. And in many ways, a lot of the things we've been on the ground following along as John has been writing about the works of Jesus and showing the miracles and explaining them through his teachings. Well, today we're going to zoom out a little bit, and we're going to zoom out enough to get a broader perspective, but we'll stay close enough to still see many of the details. But the thing I want you to see today is not just a great Bible lesson, which I hope and pray that this will be, but I want you to see this pattern, this practice of the creator of the universe who is intimately involved in the everyday of our lives. I want you to understand how it is that God is at work in the world working out his redemptive purposes of eternity. And here's what I want you to see. This is how God works out his redemptive purpose in the world. That God the Father sends the word, Jesus Christ, to give life and his spirit to live in us. That God the Father sends the word. He's working through the word. That's why the word of God is so central to us in importance, friends, because it is through his word that he continues to work. And we know that Jesus, as we study his life on earth, is the living word of God. He is the word that took on flesh. And so as we see this, we'll see God's redemptive work for eternal life by the Spirit. And I want to do this through six moves. Now, a move is a segment, if you will, of a narrative or of a play where we see different elements of the narrative introduced. And that's kind of how I want to move through the seventh chapter of the Gospel of John this morning and look together. I'm only going to read a few of the verses. I'm not going to try to read them all because I want to work throughout the seventh chapter this morning. But let's go first of all to John 7 verse 1. We're going to look at the first 13 verses for the first move. And here's the first move that I want you to see. I want you to see the setting. Let's set some context for what we're doing, okay? Here's the setting that we find ourselves in. The world's conversation about Jesus is always one of confusion. It's always one of confusion. Let's go to verse 1 for just a moment. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booth was at hand. Let me pause there for just a moment. The season now is the feast of booths. The time span between John chapter 6 and John chapter 7 is roughly six months. The 
the season between uh, the Passover and the Feast of Booths, or also known as the Feast of Tabernacles. This was the season of the year that arrived around harvest season, when they gave thanks for the special blessing of God's provision, but they also looked back at God's ultimate provision for his people throughout their time in the wilderness. And so it was an annual feast. It lasted a week, and it was called the Feast of Tabernacles because as people came into Jerusalem, they would basically build a little hut in which they would live in for the week. This is what I call biblical camping season. That's basically what the Feast of Booths was because people came and the feast lasted for an entire week. And they lived in these little huts, these little roofy huts in which they uh, uh, operated out of, if you will. But we see something in these first 13 verses that is striking for us. In verses 3 and verses 5 and verse 10, uses a word that draws a contrast for us that really provides the setting for what's taking place. Look at verse 3 with me. It says this, So his brothers said to him, speaking of those who were with Jesus, speaking to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Verse 5, listen to this. For not even his brothers believed in him. You know, when we think about this setting and how the world's conversation about Jesus is always one of mixed confusion. We should understand this about the context and the setting for Jesus here. Jesus ministered under severe trial, difficulty, and opposition. That there was no small amount. Jesus didn't walk through the world as a fairy tale and everything was hunky-dory with him while he was on the face of the earth. He labored under intense difficulty. Everything from cruel hostility of those who were seeking constantly to kill him, which is what we see throughout this, to those who walked closest to him, but secretly what? Didn't believe in him. You know, it's one thing to have the cruel opposition of the haters, right? That's manageable. But the secret questioned love of those closest to you is crushing. When those who know you best support you least can be very difficult. You see, the distance of unbelief from those closest to Jesus in John chapter 7 is what I would call a foreshadowing of the future desertion from him as he'll travel to the cross. And one by one, they'll just fall away until he walks all by himself, the path all the way to the cross. But friends, this should remind us of God's great commitment and faithfulness to us, that no matter who is with him and who goes with him, even when everyone deserts him, God continues to walk out our salvation while on the earth. That's the setting. Even though the conversation of the world is chaotic, God's redemptive purpose in the world is very clear, and he pursues that continually. See what Jesus does, not only here, but really throughout the gospel accounts, Luke uses this terminology very distinctly, is that Jesus remains focused on the hour 
or the time. That's why he says, my hour has not yet come. He's speaking of that hour with which he will be ultimately glorified when he's crucified on the cross. And he says, I'm not going to Judea because they want to kill me, but it's not time for me to die yet. And I will not die until I lay my life down. They will not take it. I will give it. But Jesus never hides from his haters. After his brothers went down, he too would follow down. You see, every act of Jesus demonstrates to us an intentional revelation of God's way and God's will in the world. There's nothing that Jesus does that's haphazard, that's in some way uh, uh, other than intentional in revealing the very character and the nature and the work of God to us. And so that's what Jesus is about here. And so he goes down, verse 10, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, he also went up, not publicly, but in private. For the Jews were looking for him at the feast saying, where is he? And there was much Here it is, friends, much what muttering about him among the people. Some said, he's a good man. Others says, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. And so this conversation in the world, this is the setting within which John introduces chapter 7 to us and what he wants to say to us. And he introduces it by this muttering in the world. Well, this muttering is not new to us. It's basically a crowd-sized grumbling or a crowd-sized complaining. It's the echo of individual grumbling. It's the echo of individual complaining that creates the reverberations of muttering among the crowd. And everything from extreme hate to kill him to questioned love. Yeah, I would like to speak for him, but I don't know if I can. That's the world's conversation about Jesus. Friends, when we go out in the world, we shouldn't expect to hear clearly faithful doctrine. They don't know who God is. They have their ideas about God. They have their conceptions about God. Even as you and I have and do in many respects, until we believe in God as his word presents him. And so we have this mumbling, this grumbling, this muttering and complaining. And in all of these things, the conversation of the world, which is the setting of our narrative today, is a powerful weapon. But it is not an ultimate weapon. And just because the world seems to speak so effectively and efficiently against God, we should understand that the world's speech about God is not the ultimate statement for God. Muttering is that language of spiritual warfare as we've talked about. Why? Because the world is a spiritual war zone, friends. Muttering is the constant gunfire, if you will, of the spiritual war in which we live. It is the enemy's artillery to wage constant attack in person to person, mouth to mouth, mind to mind, heart to heart attack in the world. That's the setting that God came into. A setting full of enemies that he came with the intentionality to love Heal, forgive, and redeem. That's the love of God. 
And that's what John is showing us. But in the world's dark shroud of muttering, just that conversation that clouds everything, the light of God's word shines. Look at John 1, 5. I want to remind us of what John has already said. <coughs> Excuse me. Read this together with me aloud, would you? The light shines in the darkness. Stop. Let's continue. And the darkness has not overcome it. Friends, I want you to know that verse right there describes the first 13 verses of what we're seeing in John 7. There is a dark shroud in this world of deceit, of chaos, of confusion. And all of that is the reality of unbelief in our creator God. But it's exactly where he chose to shine the light of his hope and the light of his love into this world. Let's look at verses 14 to 24 as we see the second move. And I call the second move the conflict, right? I mean, any good story, once you know the setting, you've got to know what the conflict is. Who are the two opposing sides that are waging war against each other? And here's where we see it. We see the light of God's word as it clarifies truth to exalt Jesus in the midst of the darkness. Verse 14, let's look at that. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews, therefore, marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Pause there for a moment. They marvel, recognizing that his teaching is not like any other. From the very beginning of the Gospel of John, what have we seen? That the most astute, studied teachers of the Scriptures were most amazed at Jesus' ability to teach in a way that none had ever taught, right? The whole story of Nicodemus in John 3 teaches us that. And we see that throughout the gospel that when Jesus taught, even those who were experts in the word, the scribes and the Pharisees, they were astounded with the authority with which he taught. And they say, what? How is it that he teaches this way? This man has no learning. He's never studied. Well, see, the difference is this, friends. Students study. The source reveals and that's the difference with Jesus Christ. That's the difference that he makes. He is not a student of the word. He is the word. He is the source from which it flows. He is the one from whom life comes, not just through whom life comes. He is both and, and he is the source here. And that's why he speaks with authority. You see, friends, until you believe in Jesus, you'll only see him as another student and never as the source of life as teaching as revelation from God he'll only be a good prophet he'll only be another great teacher to be commended he'll only be another great religious leader but until you put your faith in him you cannot see him as God as the source capital S of life and until listen until you obey by faith, you will never come to a place in your life where you know him as the source, as you daily abide with him. You see, some of you have put your trust in him, 
to initially, if you will, receive salvation. But, but what I want to encourage you in today is that, that it's not just a one and done or a, or a threshold to cross, but it is a, a way of living. And Jesus is not just our source to give us something and send us on our way, but to bring us into a new kind of life. Faith is not what gets you into the kingdom. Faith is the kingdom, friends. It's not just about receiving something from God. It's about living because God is alive in us. And when we live by faith in Jesus, we walk with him who is our source daily, moment by moment, alive in us. And that's what Jesus helps them understand. Look at verse 16. He says this, Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. You see, Jesus helps them understand that he is the source of God's truth. He speaks from the Father in order to do the Father's will. He knows the Father. And anyone, he says, who does know the Father recognizes Jesus, really for three reasons. Because the Spirit of God is upon him, And the Spirit is the one whom Jesus will send once he ascends back to heaven. The authority of God is upon him. And even the religious people saw this and understood it. But also the glory of God is upon him. Those who knew nothing about God knew something about Jesus because there was a glory, there was a good, there was a beauty, there was a truth, there was everything about him that was not anywhere else in the world. They saw that. They knew that. They could recognize that. And then John tells us something about the purpose of Jesus' teaching. It's not just to astound us, but rather that we might believe and receive eternal life. You see, the problem was not just that they didn't recognize Jesus. Much deeper than that. The problem was they didn't know God. And these were the most religious people on the face of the earth, friends. That's what Jesus tells them, though. The problem with you not accepting me is not that you don't recognize me. But the reason you don't recognize me is your concept of God isn't. It's not God. Friends, religion judges rightness by outward appearance, not true rightness. We've talked a lot about legalism and self-righteousness in this series. And they're basically the left and the right wings of every false gospel that's ever been purported. Legalism and self-righteousness creates and holds to a double standard. But they remain blind to it in their own right. And that's what Jesus shows them here. Legalism is when we claim the right word. I'll tell you the rule that you need to follow. But there's no life in that rule. Self-righteousness claims life, but it has no word, no authority behind it other than the one who espouses it. You see, both legalism and self-righteousness try to establish a moral code. But every rule of morality without Jesus only forms a double standard because it lacks any higher authority and ultimately can only lead to death. Because it has no source and no power to give what it promises, life. 
They're two different paths that lead to the same place. Legalism and self-righteousness in every form only and always leads to death. And I'll say this, of the two, religion is the biggest strategy to dismiss God. Because it's easy to be deceived by it. It claims God, but it lacks the power and it shrouds the truth of God with darkness. But what did we say about darkness? It was into the darkness, was it not? That God brought the light of his son. And darkness has never overcome the light. But we will see this, friends. That bright light and darkness can almost be debilitating at times and creates greater chaos initially. Look at the third move today. This is what I would call the point. The point that Jesus is driving at here and John wants us to see. That it is the word of God that works to accomplish the will of God. It's not some other aberration, but rather it is the word that is working. Not the people that are attaining to, but the word, God himself, that is working in the world What we see in verses 25 through 31 is that Jesus contrasts God's true power against the false power of religion. Jesus, in in verses 21 through 24, he's just talked to them about Moses. He says, you claim that Moses is your authority, but Moses spoke of God of whom you don't know. And the problem is you've created a double standard because you hold to the things you said are from Moses, but the very thing that Moses led the people of God to accomplish, you deny. You deny. And so he makes this contrast, and and the great confusion surrounds the teaching of the Messiah. Look at verse 25 with me. Look at the questions they were asking. This is so rich, friends. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? Wait a minute, he's right here. Why don't they just come take him and kill him? And so people are waking up. There are some who are seeing the double standard that they're living behind. And here he is speaking openly, yet they say nothing to him. Can it be that they really know that this is the Christ? Ah, ah, maybe they're hiding something from us. Yes, we love conspiracy theories, don't we? We've always loved them. But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. You see, here's what religion had done for them, friends. Religion and bad teaching, mishandling of the word of God, had given them wrong proofs to identify the Messiah by. And that confused them. Their teaching about the Messiah was shrouded by their religion And religion always creates the greatest confusion and deception simply by mishandling the word of God. I want to get real personal with us for just a moment in southwest Missouri. I want to talk a little bit about our culture here in southwest Missouri. I've lived here to be 18 years this summer. So so for me, this... By August of this year, I will have lived nowhere else longer than I've lived here. So I think that's pretty good for me to call it home. I'm not quite a hillbilly yet, but I'm hoping to attain towards that. But I want to talk to you. 
about Southwest Missouri for just a minute. I believe if the Apostle Paul showed up today, he would do to us what he did on the hill in, Mars, uh, in Acts 17 at Mars Hill to the Athenians. I see that in every place, you're a religious people. There's a church on every corner, some of them have too. You make claims about things that you don't really live out. But you claim to know God. And yet, the strongest undercurrent running through our city and our greater micropolitan region is more anti-God than God. Your churches gather, but they're impotent when they are sent out. You claim things about God and you use his word to make reference to it, but that word is meaningless because you use it to dismiss people more than to pursue them. We are a culture replete with de-churched people. That's the term used for people who once had some affiliation or action with, but are no longer associated with. Southwest Missouri is highly religious. And we're known for this nationally, friends. I'll give you two examples. Number one, Skepticons is the National Skeptics Association, who seven years ago, I believe maybe five, chose Springfield, Missouri for their national conference because it was so highly religious. In the last three years, the gender debate and the new sexual identity argument has chosen Springfield, Missouri and the outlying communities as a point to, to funnel in great resources, knowing that this was a conservative stronghold in the state. And if they could overwhelm us in those political arguments, they could defeat us as a state. That's factual. That's been put in the news. I'm not, you can Google it and find that out. We are very religious. The most disheartening person in Southwest Missouri that I now encounter is this person. They reject the church and they reject parts of the Bible, but they still believe that they follow Jesus. It's what I call an individualized Christianity. It's really a relativized Christianity. But it centers on me. They claim Christianity and they regularly use Bible verses to substantiate it. They usually, though, claim the promises of the Bible that are most efficient and effective for coddling their personal comforts and their preferences. The things they like. They identify a few pet feet. Let me try that one again. I didn't realize that was going to be so hard when I wrote it. They identify a few pet peeves that they loathe in order to justify themselves from casting off the Christianity. And they dismiss and they reject the local church so that they can make relationship with Jesus their own individualized expression and form. And it's always customized exclusively for them. But hear me, individualized, relativized Christianity is no Christianity at all. It is prevalent both outside and inside the church, though. At its core, individualized Christianity, which is no Christianity at all, denies and rejects God's authority in life through earthly means, just as they did here. And they principally do it through the mishandling of God's word. 
They claim that Jesus walks with them, but there's no surrender or obedience that they speak of. They speak of Jesus as their close, intimate friend, like they do their dog in many ways, but they never refer to him as king, lord, or master. Jesus is always suspiciously similar to personal comforts and conveniences. They love to talk about blessing, not so much sacrifice or surrender. You see, the center of Jesus' universe in their ideology is always very near orbiting on the trajectory of their feelings about him. Self-denial, if it's ever present, equates to little more than self-help. The only cross they ever take up is nothing more than the latest piece of jewelry they just got. And in all this, the principal justification for their practice is an incorrect handling of God's word. They're our neighbors, friends. They're our neighbors. They're your friends. They may be your family members. They may be and highly likely are in this church with us. You see, the point is not to identify them so we can get away from them. But the point is to know who we are in Christ that we might be light and come into the world as God has come into the world, not for ourselves, but to proclaim him who is light and is never overcome by darkness. In southwest Missouri, religion's confusion and deception thrives best when closest in Christianity's cloak. But it's absent of Jesus' true presence and it's absent of his refining work through his word. People here, they question Jesus' identity. And Jesus says, I've come from one you don't know. He is true and he has sent me here. And Jesus directs them to consider who it is that sent him and the purpose for why he has sent them. You see, the most compelling evidence to believe in Jesus is that he never sought his own glory, but only the glory of the Father. This conflict intensifies, friends. And, and as it intensifies, the chaos ensues. And I mean, it ensues in such a way that it gets so heated. The word of God, though, friends, never loses its ability and its effectiveness to work. We should not bemoan the slide of morality in our culture or even the greater slide of our culture away from God and the way that it creates chaos because when God's word goes forth the prophet Isaiah tells us it will always accomplish the purpose for which God has sent it out that's what we must believe as we go out and if you question whether God's word will ever prove sufficient for you I want you to reference these verses friends I want you to understand what's taking place specifically here in verse 31 as it is so incredibly important for us because at the crux of the chaos in the center of the greatest confusion yet yet John writes many of the people believed in him there is no chaos in the world that it can create 
that will distract the word of God from fulfilling God's will and God's purpose. It doesn't matter how heated the conflict gets. It will not subvert and burn out the purpose for which God sends forth his world. And that's why we are here, the light of the world, the salt of the earth. We are the ambassadors sharing and serving the reconciliation purposes of God's word in the world. That people are coming back to God because of Jesus and because of what he has done. No matter how chaotic and uncertain life may be. There is no power that is greater than God's word and there is no power that is sufficient to fulfill God's purpose for your life in the world. But listen, our witness in the world will never be anything other than more muttering until our lives depend solely upon the word of God as our own source. If he's not living in us and daily the power by which we live by abiding in him, he'll never be the light that goes out from us into the world. The reason that we don't talk to our neighbors about Jesus is because we're not talking to Jesus enough. And when we trust in him more, the things that he commands us to do will not be a burden to us, but will be the most gratifying and satisfying expression of our life that we could possibly imagine. But our mind is confused so often. Friends, you must believe in Jesus to follow God's way. And the work of God's word creates and cultivates faith within us. God's word is never hindered by the winds of culture or by the world's situation. If there's anything we need to hear today, friends, in the day and time in which we live, we have surpassed civility And it's not a political fight in which we are in. It's a spiritual war. And if we don't lay down the weapons of political anarchy and take up the weapons that are powerful to break down strongholds, we will not win this war. point for every person remains when God's word is proclaimed. Here's where it begins. Will you listen to God's word and what it says to your heart and how he is leading you to say yes to him, to walk faithfully with him? Friends, when chaos overwhelms and opposition often feels more intense, I don't want you to lose heart. Look at the next move. This moves what I call the promise, verses 32 to 36. This is where Jesus' promise assures God's authority for victory. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Why? It was their greatest opportunity to capitalize on taking Jesus out because it would defer attention away from them, making it look like he was just creating a riot. And here's Jesus' promise. I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Basically, let me just give this in an illustration we can understand. Jesus walks up to the plate, and before he steps into the batter's box, he lowers his bat, and he points at the fence. I don't care what pitch you throw me. I don't care what happens next. This ball's going over the fence. This game will be won. 
You see, friends, if you and I don't learn to trust in the ultimate promises of God, we'll never learn to depend upon the immediate power of God and strength of God in our life. God's promise is more certain than you sitting in this room right now. There is nothing that can thwart the promise of God for your life. There is nothing that can subjugate the power of God in your life except for unbelief. Except for unbelief. And what Jesus does is he gives us this promise of victory. What we so often get confused on as Christians is that we're striving towards victory in life instead of living from it. The war is not up for debate. It's been won. When Jesus came out of the tomb, he plucked the stinger out of death. Said, you're not going to sting again because of me. He, he, he took darkness and conquered it once for all. And that's the reality in which we live. Jesus is unhindered by this situation. Everything's breaking loose around him, chaos and confusion. But he's not ruffled. He's not nervous. He's not anxious. He's not upset. And he's not otherwise distracted. He speaks with calmness. He speaks with assurance. He speaks with authority because that's the way Jesus works. Jesus' words give a promise that foretells his victory over the world. Would you stop for just a moment and think about when chaos breaks out in your life, how it is that it affects you? Because no matter how unmoved, unnerved, or undone you may become by chaos, Jesus always remains anchored, stable, and secure, even when the whole world is spinning out of control. And when you focus on him and you abide in him, your life will reflect the same. Jesus is peace for life, regardless of the world's situation. He is always a secure place away from the world's threats against us. Friends, if we learn anything from John 7, we should see this. No one touches Jesus until he allows it. Because it's by his authority he will lay his life down. Look at the fifth move. This is what I call the invitation, beginning in verse 37 through 39. Jesus' words create greater chaos. I mean, there's no greater chaos than what it seems like is about to happen. And the one it's about to happen to, he says, this is not going to happen. Right? I mean, that's kind of how it fleshes out. And here's what Jesus says. Look at verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Yes, friends, here's the fifth move. It's the invitation. And when the invitation is given, yes is always the right response when Jesus speaks and the Holy Spirit Lead. You see, believe in Jesus is always demonstrated through the specific action to obey Jesus' words. That's what believe is always demonstrated by actions. And, and the thing about Jesus' invitation is it always comes with a redemptive 
urgency. Look at Psalm 95 when it says to us, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. There's never been a time when the invitation of the revelation of God's word came with something other than urgency. For now, today is the time. The invitation to believe in Jesus is always immediate. It's never delayed. The right time to respond to Jesus is with a yes when God speaks because it is the word of God that gives faith in God that we can respond to God. You see, Jesus' invitation and the Spirit's conviction on our life to repent always comes with a deadline. And here's the deadline. Today. Today is the day to say yes to the work of God and to his Spirit in your life. What will you say to him? You see, the seventh, or excuse me, the sixth move, the remainder of the chapter, only continues to amplify the confusion of the world. Here it is it's the voices. What John does in verses 40 through 52 is he kind of zooms us out. All of a sudden, we've been in the midst of this and we're feeling like we're moving deeper and deeper into the chaos in the literary writing of John. And then at verse 40, all of a sudden, he goes, zoop. After the invitation is given, he draws us out and he says this, look, the muttering and the complaining and the griping, the chaos and the confusion, the attack, the overwhelmingness is going to continue. But that's not the point. The point is Jesus has extended his invitation. What will you do with it? What will you do with it? What will you do with the invitation of Jesus to receive life? And to live out of the overflow. When God invites, friends, when God invites, he appoints and empowers salvation and obedience. What will you do with Jesus' invitation? God the Father sends the word, Jesus, to give life and his spirit to live in us.